Welcome to Empower Humans. Welcome again to the Empower Humans podcast. This is episode 140. We're moving along, aren't we? We've got John Lefebvre today. John is coming to us today from Canada. By the way, his last name is spelled L-E-F-E-B-V-R-E. I thought, well, hey, this is Lefevre. I've seen that before in uh, America, at least. At least we pronounce things a little odd sometimes. But, you know, coming from Canada, we get a little bit more towards the French pronunciation, Lefebvre. So (laughs) John's coming to us with incredible story. I read his story and I was like, you know what? We got to get this guy on the podcast. He's got uh, rags to riches to prison briefly and a few other things story that is just fascinating and such a positive outlook both for him, his life and his family and humanity at large. And uh, I'm not even going to try to do it justice here in our intro, uh, but listen to our interview. He was worth several hundred million dollars and uh, had all kinds of, we talk about all this stuff, all kinds of extravagant living and (laughs) things going on around 15 to 20 years ago, and a lot of things have happened since then, but a lot of great perspective and stories. Um, Before we jump into that interview, I just want to remind you, as always, you are absolutely priceless and you're never alone. What do we mean by that? Well, being priceless means without price. You're above the monetary systems of this world. You're above all the so-called riches and nonsense. The riches are found in you. Think about that. Let that sink in. Some of you may not believe that at the moment, but I absolutely know that it's the case, and I want you to know that it's the case. And uh, don't convince yourself of any of these other things, and certainly don't let anyone else or any other outside factor, you know, neighbors, jobs, whatever external things that we can't fully control, uh, start to control what we can control internally, which is how we talk to ourselves. You are absolutely priceless, and you're not alone. People are going through all kinds of stuff, so you're not alone, literally. Uh, Furthermore, being on this planet, we're not alone. And people go through what it takes to be human beings, Uh, men, women, and all the various things and urges and uh, difficulties and hungers and (laughs) whatnot that we have. You are not alone. Reach out. uh, Info at EmpowerHumans.com at Empower101 on Instagram and Twitter. Um, Also, go to call.empowerhumans.com. Schedule a call with me. Schedule a call. I want to talk with our audience. And uh, there's nothing for sale. I literally just want to talk like as friends and there's there's no hidden agenda or anything. I want to get to know our audience and uh, there's some extra gifts and stuff. You can uh, pick something that applies to you. It's all on that page, call.empowerhumans.com, uh, my gift to you and also your gift to me. Let's talk. Uh, moving along our challenges before we jump into the interview, study. I always say start studying or keep studying. If you've been studying, uh, that's stimulate your mind. Even if you're taking 10 minutes a day to read or listen to an audio book or some other uplifting thing that keeps our minds in tune. Because as I've been saying, we're like musical instruments. We talked with John today about music and stuff. And instruments get out of tune. And so just like that, we can continue to have a harmonious, beautiful melody and a general harmony overall if we stay in tune. And uh, studying is one of the ways to do that. Find something that resonates with you. I'm not going to tell you what to study. You tell yourself. Go listen to your gut, go meditate and figure out who you are, what your purpose is and study and grow and learn in that area. The second challenge, make great moments. My son just had a birthday the other day. He turned nine. Uh, He was almost born on February 29th in 2012. And he decided to wait till the next morning. Uh, But in any event, uh, we got to spend time together. We did all kinds of things together. We went swimming, we're doing Legos and uh, just, you know, lots of hugs and appreciation. Uh, The people that we lives need to know about it. Do you remember Uh, Billy Joel had a song called Tell Her About It. Uh, And it's this essence of the song 
is if you love someone, you got to let them know. And when we love someone, we're always insecure. All these things Billy Joel said, uh, we've got to let people know and not be scared. Step up boldly and let people know you love them because that's what matters. Not money, not cars, not nonsense, not so-called prestige and clothes and all these various uh, little fleeting nonsense things in life. We love each other, and that's how we need to live our lives and make great moments. So the last challenge, my friends, let's keep doing this podcast together. I want to point out as we jump into this interview, John's got a couple books. One of them's called All's Well, Where Thou Art, Earth, and Why. And the second book, uh, much more recently, just came out uh, about his story, which is a fascinating story. He says he's going to send me a copy, so I'm excited for that. The book is called Good With Money, A Rich Guy's Guide to Gaining Everything by Losing It All. Again, John Lefebvre, L-E-F as in Frank, E, B as in boy, V as in Victor, R-E, John Lefebvre. And uh, here we go with our interview, the one and only John Lefebvre. Let's go. We are pleased to welcome John Lefebvre who is a philanthropist, musician, business mogul. I don't know everything we're going to cover with your business because you've got quite a story, John. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm having a beautiful day. Thanks for asking, Phil. I'm gazing out at some salt water on the west coast of Canada, and uh, there are a few geese in my yard today, Canada geese. So if there's some honking in the background, I hope you'll be patient with it. <laughs> no, I think that sounds great. We can all visualize if we were there because uh, I'm in Las Vegas. And we don't have a lot of geese, uh, <laughs> especially this time of year or probably ever because it just it's too cold or too hot in Vegas. But how long have you lived up there? Are you from there originally? Uh, no, I was born in Alberta, in Calgary, Alberta. My mom was from Calgary. Uh, she ran away to get married, but my dad died when we were little guys and, um, oh, and she that. moved back home. So, yeah, no, I, that's... Uh, that's some of one of the things that's um, made me what I am. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, we lived in Calgary since 1955. So um, uh, when I was around three, three or four, and then I moved to um, I moved to Costa Rica in around 2000 on uh, the um, on the online gambit, and uh, then yeah. um, retired. We retired from that in around 2004 to Salt Spring Island, which is an island. In, um, in the Pacific Ocean, west of Vancouver, but east of Vancouver Island. So in what we call Georgia Strait, which is uh, quite quite a large body of water, but uh, without surf in it. Yeah. Well, I can hear the Canada in your voice and I like it. Uh, we've had a few great Canadians on the podcast. Uh, just great hey. people in Canada. Yeah. Hey, and a boot <laughs> and all that stuff that you guys share with us. So we've got a lot of great comedians come to America and all kinds of great stuff. So Thanks to our neighbors in the it's, north, of which you are one. <laughs> it's been a wonderful thing growing up next to such a uh, um, forthright neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking before we started about uh, how we Americans just pronounce, because you have kind of a unique name. It's a French, you know, as, can, as Canadians go, you've got this, which I would pronounce La Fever, but you said it's La Fave and the French would say La Fave or something like I, you know, I took some French yeah. in uh, uh, Rosetta Stone mm -hmm. and stuff, but anyway, we Americans oh, got to yeah. work on some of that. <laughs> um, well, don't, don't we all? Yeah. And I want to cover all kinds of stuff because your, your story, I read your story and I was like, wow, this is fascinating as heck. 
because you've had quite the roller coaster ride on all fronts from music to, uh, of course, writing. Uh, you've also mm-hmm. had a massive kind of business roller coaster that is just fascinating. Yeah. And I, for one, have been an entrepreneur most of my adult life. I've never been rolling the hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and so I just I want to cover all that kind of stuff. And I think our audience will find it quite interesting. But where do you want to start with your story? Like, How far back do you want to go? You said you lost your dad when you were a kid, which I'm so sorry to hear that. Um and I think you mentioned siblings. You have siblings as well? Yep, I do. I've got an older sister and a younger brother. Um, they both live in Calgary still. Mm. Um, I've, uh, they, they come to see me whenever, whenever I let them. <laughs> <laughs> they have, it's, it, we, we're, we're situated very nicely here um, on the southwest coast of Canada. It's very, uh, it's very like Seattle. Uh, and, um, you know, to people in Las Vegas, that doesn't seem that, uh, um, you know, I'm going to say subtropical, but, um, in Calgary, when you see 30 below in the wintertime, what we have here in, in, yeah, in yeah. December is very appealing. Yeah. But no, my, I have an older, uh, an older sister and a younger brother, Anne, Anne and Ted, and my mother uh, raised the three of us on, um, uh, on her own. Um, my father was a soldier and, um, he, uh, Got trapped in a uh, he got trapped in a blizzard in, uh, in eastern Canada. We call it the Maritime Provinces. You call them New England on your side of the border. Ah. And um, he was uh, asphyxiated. Uh, the, the fellow in front Goodness. left uh, his his motor running, and um, just the way the winds were going, that uh, carbon monoxide came in, and um, yeah, it was um, it was a tragedy. And my mom uh, brought us home to Calgary and raised us on her own. And wow. you know, she was a uh, a ticket agent at Western airlines in the old days. And then she decided to go to university and she became a teacher when I was in about grade four or five. And then wow. um, she continued on to study uh, counseling, got a master's degree from Gonzaga in Spokane and um, ended her career, a uh, guidance counselor in the high school system in Calgary. So wow. she did a great job and I'm very, very proud of the work she did. She exposed us to music when we were young, which was very, very beautiful. Uh, my first concert was a Pete Seeger concert in around 1962, maybe, or something like that. Wow. So we were, we, we saw it all. Yeah. We saw it all. I was just on my phone yesterday with a friend of mine, Fred Monk from Calgary, who, uh, when I was about um, 12, Fred's, Fred's big brother's a guy named Alan Monk, and he sang for 20 years at the Met in, uh, in New York, and he sang oh, yeah. for about seven years uh, for San Francisco. His last gig before he left Calgary was the Calgary Theater Singers, and they sang Pagliacci, which is that great opera about the clown with the broken heart. Mm-hmm. And um, we, they needed children. And so Fred brought me in to uh, sing an opera when I was about 12 years old. And uh, that was that was a, an amazing thing. Wow. So I had the music. My mom and other things brought music to me very early. So, um, yeah, yeah. I never was... Uh, I, I'll just go on, I guess, quickly to say, you know, nice. I, I, my, my career was fairly normal. I went to university, but not until I was around 27. And I, pra- I studied law uh, and practiced law for a few years and, and uh, 10 or so. And uh, in that process, I was introduced to uh, a fellow who had uh, quite an entrepreneurial spirit, Steve Lawrence. And um, he came up with the idea of uh, that, um, you know, if uh, this was it around, I'm going to say, uh, 1998, 99 or so, and uh, he, he recognized that people were gambling online. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I uh, thought, you know, if somebody brought some uh, reliability and uh, um, some security uh, to the uh, money transfer side of online gambling, that that might make a good little business model. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 16-year-old kid that worked in his car wash <laughs> said, said, yeah, and we can do it all on the internet. We can just do it, you know, we can like, you know, instead of having to use credit cards all the time, people can just use our system and they can transfer money in and out and and we'll just clear with the bookies every couple of weeks or something. like. Well, anyways, that was the idea. That was mm. the germ of it. And then they started it and we began um, transferring money on in support of the online gambling industry in uh, 2000, uh, went public on the aim board of the London stock exchange in 2003 achieved a market cap of around $2 billion. And, uh, I owned yeah. about 27% of that. <laughs> yeah. And, um, then, um, in June of around 2007, I think, uh, uncle Sam showed up at the door of one of my two houses on Malibu beach <laughs> and put up his hand and said, you must come to the door immediately. And uh, a lot changed that day, uh, including my net worth. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then um, wow. so I, w- I was charged. They were they were threatening. They threatened three offenses were tw- that were twenty years each: um, conspiracy, money laundering, and uh, um, racketeering were the three. Uh, but um, after about a year's negotiation, I pled guilty to a lesser offense: uh, the promotion of illegal gambling, and. Um, Wound up uh, serving 45 days in prison in uh, the facility in New York where um, they keep El Chapo (laughs) and where Jeffrey Epstein uh, came to his end. Um, People say he committed suicide, but other people aren't so sure. Um, So I have some experience in there that's uh, quite wonderful. Um, And um, (laughs) now um, retired uh, to the West Coast of uh, Canada and... uh, I still do some work for the David Suzuki Foundation. David isn't that well known on your side of the border, but he's a very well known environmentalist, and um, you know guys mm-hmm. like uh, Jim Henson and Al Gore and that know him very well. And um, I, I work for his foundation and for his institute. Um, and uh, in that uh, in that line, uh, we did some uh, great stuff. We did a um, we started a blog in around 2005 called Desmog Blog. It's that's that's what the American one is called. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a series of five of those blogs now around the world. But they um, in 2012, I think uh, we got Desmog Blog got one of the ten best blogs uh, in in America on, in Time Magazine. Yeah. Uh, but the slug line for Desmog Blog was clearing up the PR pollution that clouds climate science. My friend, Jim Hogan introduced me to it, the idea. And um, we, uh, he was a, he's a very accomplished PR guy and he's very sensitive to the uh, idea that, uh, you know, the climate crisis uh, more than anything else is a PR crisis in the sense that, um, you know, the ignorance uh, about it and the denial about it is uh, fueled primarily by, propaganda from fossil fuel developers mm-hmm. so not to tip not to you know not to tip my hand too quickly here but i'm spending a dear deal of my career um um putting up my hand to, to uh to as we say depant uh the fossil fuel guys guys so yeah 
Phil, why don't I stop there? That's that's quite a broad ranging little thing. Yeah, I don't well, want to go on forever here, but I'm going to. Uh, well, oh, we yeah. forgot the music part. Well, no, no, you touched on music early on, and then there's some music in between that. We'll, sure. Let, let's get back to music in a little bit, if we can. And uh, sure. And I appreciate you explaining all that. It's uh, it's it's quite the roller coaster. You you maintain a calm composure going through it, but there must have been a lot of ups and downs emotionally, and so on. Especially, let's let's focus in on the business stuff for a second, uh, if you don't mind. Sure. Because so we built this business, and you know, as a guy living in Vegas, you know, the gambling and all that—that's all around where I live. Um, not as much mm-hmm. these days with the COVID nonsense, but um, it's it's kind of an interesting business model that you talked about, where you built this thing up, and it's to facilitate money transfers. And so uncle Sam decides, okay, this isn't kosher because gambling's illegal in most places. And so all these people, whether they're in Wisconsin or all these other places are gambling. It was that kind of the premise Forgive of how me. we got in trouble just because gambling's uh, illegal yes. in so many uh, places. And then. Well, it's uh, it's, yes, it, it's, it's um, legal in more places than it's illegal, but it's definitely illegal in most of the United States, unless you happen to be a uh, government. And if you're a government, then uh, it changes from a, oh, here come the float planes. Sorry. No worries. The, um, it changes from a uh, pernicious vice in individuals to good tax policy if you're a government. When I was arrested for, uh, for supporting the online gaming industry, um, the uh, uh, 48 of the 50 states operated gambling themselves or licensed it out to others. The only two states at the time who didn't have a operate any gambling at all were Utah and Hawaii, but all the rest of them did. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it was, um, I always felt, um, whatever else I felt about it, Phil, I never felt, um, uh, that like I had offended, uh, anything more than a theoretical morality, you know, if it was, uh, if it was, if it was immoral for uh, me, then it was immoral for them. So that, that was at least hypocritical of them. But, um, and now, you know, it's uh, pretty much legal everywhere. I think, you know, there's, but, um, well, not, it's legal in the sense that governments everywhere are (laughs) are letting you gamble online, but Mm -hmm. they're taking their piece. Yeah, of course. Just like with, you know, marijuana and stuff, they want to take their piece and it makes sense. Mm -hmm. There's there's a whole topic there that you could dig into. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, um, I, I, you know, if we get, Get there. I'd be interested to talk to you about taxation. I think it's an honor to pay taxes in Canada, and it should be an honor to pay taxes in America. The problem isn't the paying of the taxes. The problem is what it gets spent on, or what are not spent on. But you know, yeah. if there's one the one thing we're going to need going forward if we're going to be fair to everybody in the world is we're going to need a lot of money, and um, um, the uh, the uh, the amount of money that we create, the amount of wealth that we create, ought not to be diminished. It just ought to be um, dealt with. Uh, differently. Uh, you can let me know when you want to talk more about that, but I think conservatism these days has, you know, become a, a very corrupt uh, um, version of what it ought to be. And um, we, we, there's a, there's a very important place for conservatism in our society, but um, um, uh, enabling the selfish wealthy is not the right place for conservatism to be working. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a deep topic, and there's a lot of uh, layers to it. Um, mm-hmm. So you d- talk about as far as the business stuff, and we'll get back to the, these topics. Mm-hmm. The so you at a certain time you were worth probably at least 
you know, three, $400 million sounds like something like that. Is that correct? Yeah. I think that's a pretty good guess. Yeah. I was around uh, at least 300 million for a while. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Okay. Number I never one. really saw that on my table. You know, I pulled, uh, you know, I pulled more than a hundred million dollars off, but a lot of that was, you know, um, stock value. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. an interesting thing when you've got uh, uh, stock value in a company like that. Number one, what does that feel like? <laughs> I've never had that kind of money. Maybe one day I will, who knows, but uh, what does that feel like waking up in the morning knowing, Hey, I'm worth 300 plus million dollars. Uh, <laughs> most people never can't really relate to that it. feeling per se. Yeah. Including me. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's quite, it's one of those things like how many stars are there in the universe? You just, it's sort of a difficult thing to get your head around, you know, and you, and you sort of never do, but you know, you just know, I, I knew this, I would, I was 50 when I came into, you know, that kind of um, fortune and um, I had a time to lots of time to grow up and, you know, watch the world and see the way the world works and understand that, you know, mm -hmm. that didn't make me special. That just made me, you know, super fortunate. And I'm going to say made me super responsible <laughs> because mm, you know, when you have that kind of power, you know, it, uh, it, 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 it cries out to be used to, 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 to better, you know, things. Um, well, not, yeah, go but, ahead. Um, I would, I did, I, I felt, I, I felt like, um, you know, I could do anything, anything. I was, the, I was the kid least likely, you know, I was the, you know, I was never good at balancing my bank account. And I always dreamt when I was a child that, you know, you'd come to a time when, you know, you could stick your hand in your pocket and it'd always be full of money still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and then that happened to me. And so, I, you know, for a while I, you know, I'd go around and, you know, buy cars because I liked the look of them. And I bought houses on Malibu beach because uh, one wasn't enough. I wanted, you know, another. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I did, you know, I did, a, um, I did other things too that were, you know, uh, sort of in my mind kind of balanced that off. You know, I, uh, I, I devoted $5 million to, um, uh, Dalai Lama. I met him three or four times. I had a private audience so he invited me to bring whoever I wanted. So I brought my mom Wow. and, uh, we had, a, we had a 20 minutes with his holiness in Vancouver and, um, wow. With, I, I was the founding funder of the uh, Dalai Lama Center for Peace and Education in Vancouver. He doesn't lend his name to much, but he let us do that in Vancouver. Um, I gave uh, several millions of dollars to the Suzuki Foundation and, you know, so I, and, and helped, um, you know, um, hundreds of people just passing cash around, you know, and giving people who couldn't get mortgages, mortgages. And, you know, I was... Uh, my, my, all of my financial advisors tell me I was overly generous, but um, I mm -hmm. think I was just, you know, generous, <laughs> merely generous. <laughs> In the eye of the beholder. Um, so go ahead. I tried my, I, I tried my best to not um, let it go to my head and I don't think I succeeded completely, but um, I, I did, um, you know, I did some very extravagant things. You know, I had a, I had my own jet and, you know, we could, one morning, for instance, I you know I woke up and I um, I uh, phoned my pilot Dale. I said I, my daughter was at uh, at um, uh, Trinity University in Dublin, mm -hmm. and um, I said, "Can we go to Dublin this afternoon?" And he said, "I'll fly file the flight plan." And then that evening, I was you know flying through above the Arctic Circle, above Iceland, in the middle of the Aurora Borealis on my way to Ireland to see my daughter on a spur of the moment. So 
those sorts of things were available to me and I, I, I did take full advantage, you know, and in my, in my defense, I let my friends use my plane too, not like Tiger Woods, who said famously, that's why they call them private jets. They're private. <laughs> yeah, that's, bless, most bless of us heart. don't fly private. It's, uh, <laughs> most of us don't have our own jets. Yeah. This stuff is just interesting to me. You had not one, but two houses on Malibu beach. I used to live in LA and I, you know, I used to see some of those houses. Um, and, uh, it's, it's just, it's the kind of world and the amount of money that most folks dream of and don't obtain. A lot of folks play the lottery, hoping, thinking, plus, you know, you were in the gambling world. That's kind of the name of the game is we're just trying to win money. Everyone's wanting to get money. And you in a roundabout way in the gambling world, were able to come upon this fortune. Um, and what other, you know, you talk about the Dalai Lama, by the way, put a good word in. We'd love to get him on the podcast, <laughs> but uh, I'll see what they can do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm half playing, uh, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, me too. what other, uh, what other kind of extravagances did we indulge during this time? Cause you, you touched on some things. Was there any other kind of things that the, your younger or poorer self might kind of look on like, wow, that was kind of nutty. Uh, anything else that we're, we're missing we see a lot of this in Vegas. People come high rollers and do all kinds of crazy stuff here in Las Vegas. But uh, any yeah. anything more on that yeah. topic? Well, I did. You know, I don't. I don't spend too too much time with that part of my life. But I, you know, there were there were some things that I did that were pretty astonishing. I I flew from uh, you know your way around Los Angeles. I I, I flew from um, Burbank to uh, Santa Monica. One day took about four and a half minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. I had to, uh, my, my record producer, Brian Ahern, who was, um, uh, you know, a husband for a long time to Emmy Lou Harris, incidentally. Yeah. Um, uh, his daughter, uh, Shannon left a car for him at Burbank and I was on my way out to Malibu. And as you know, people at Malibu go to fly to the private airports that they use are Santa Monica. And, um, there's one up in Van Nuys. Yeah, yep. uh, but um, I uh, I could have left my my plane at uh, Burbank and you know taken the limo out to the beach, but now nah, let's fly. So we we took off north out of Burbank, did a great big arc to the right of uh, 270 degrees or whatever it is, and uh, <laughs> you know uh, just made one great big turn and then <laughs> straight into Santa Monica. It took about you know I think four and a half minutes, five minutes, something like that. So flying across Los Angeles at about, you know, 4,000 feet in your own jet and looking around and thinking, hmm, I guess this is what I made it is. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, you're, you're flying over all the traffic. So you probably saved a couple hours uh, between Burbank and Santa Monica. It's probably not that much depending it, yeah. on the time of day, but uh, yeah, it could be that much. Yeah, it could. Um, yeah, I just, uh, they're all just things really, you know, I would take, you know, friends of family and cousins and stuff like that and their children. I take them for, um, you know, my, my two, co my, my, my cousin's two daughters, I, I took them to a Rodeo drive to get graduation dresses. You know, one got from Armani and the other one's from Prada, but while we were at it, they, we spent, you know, $30,000 on, you know, guests and other, you know, all those, you know, those dumb stores and Rodeo. Yeah. <laughs> and what happens to you, Phil, is that, you know, pretty soon the rush of spending money is, is really a bore. You wind up with a closet full of clothes that still have price tags on them. And, and you know, the, and very quickly for me anyways, you know, the only rush that remained was um, 
giving the rush to others, right? And yeah. uh, and it, and watching and watching the joy, the astonishment <laughs> it brought to them, and um, yeah, for sure. And that that was an impulse I had from the beginning. But I knew that you know when you come into this kind of money, there there's there's a responsibility, and the responsibility is to well, firstly to share, but secondly, I think to do what I'm doing now, and that is to um, to uh, encourage other wealthy people to understand that um, um, that it's not it's not just for them, you know. It's, not just for them. I'd, I'd like to talk about that a, a little bit if we get the time, but um, the short version of it is, is that um, when we pay our income tax, that's just working guys because only people who have income pay taxes. There's no wealth tax yes, but yet, but you know, bless Elizabeth Warren's heart, I support her completely. But what we do with those taxes is we support the, the, the you know, the institutions of democracy that make it secure for wealthy people to have their money securely. You know, it's our banking systems and our financial systems and the security systems and communication systems and all of those things. And they get their hundreds and hundreds and millions and billions of dollars taken care of perfectly well for no fee. And that's just not right. You know, if we had like Elizabeth Warren's plan to tax wealth at 2%, um, you know, I'm not sure if her numbers or the ones that I would start with or end with either. But, um, you know, just for example, her 2% on people over 50, 50 on, on money on estates over $50 million, that'd be enough for everybody in America to have health care, child care, elder care, uh, you know, access to justice through um, law, law care, call it or whatever, um, you know, uh, all the education, um, all of the things that you and I take for granted in our day-to-day life as entitlements, uh, but that so many of us simply can't afford, you know, how, 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 how often can we turn to the courts for, for, for justice, you know, in our society? Well, if you don't have $400 an hour to pay a lawyer, you simply can't. You know, and that's not right. the way things should be. You know, in a country like America, everybody should be able to have the judge hear their complaint. And um, so anyways, that's yeah. the short version of it. We can go on about that all day. But, I, you know, um, I know a thing or two about being wealthy. <laughs> and um, sure, these guys don't fool me. And I'm not. And I think it's time. It's. The, the, you know, the levers of democratic power in, in the Western world, and particularly in America, there's a thumb on the scales of democratic power, the thumb of the selfish wealthy. And we're in a situation now in America where it's, we're very, very close to being able to end that forever, you know, to make it fair again, to make every vote count the same. You know, that's one of the lies we were taught when we were kids. That, you know, in democracy, everybody is the same, one man, one vote. But that's not what it is in America. You know, wealthy people in America have a lot more influence than the, than the poverty-stricken the poverty stricken and voter-suppressed population of America. Tell them that one man, one vote is the story. Well, it's not. Mm. And Donald Trump was right when he said, you know, when everybody's voting by mail, there'll never be another Republican president. <laughs> and bless his heart, he was right. <laughs> well, but yes, we're on we're on we're on the cusp of that in America right now, and that is, you know, the ending of the selfish, wealthy thumb on the scales of uh, authority. Well, yeah, and you make a lot of great points. I, for one, don't get particularly political per se. If I'm being honest, and this might be the first time I ever say anything political on the show, is 
with the folks that we have in there, frankly, I don't trust and believe hardly any of them, but I do believe that people ought to be able to have their basic needs met. And I, and not just in America, America is an anomaly in the, on the planet. I mean, you know, I've, I've read this some time ago. I Absolutely. read something like, like 20% of people in the world even have a car, 20, 25%, let alone two cars and above. And certainly you've had more than mm-hmm. that sounds like, <laughs> but you're also mm-hmm. an anomaly. Uh, but, you know, and that's one of the reasons we have all these people wanting to come to America. I was married to an immigrant from Chile and they come from mm-hmm. nothing. And I know that so many people have so many hot button feelings about immigration. But I tell you what, Mm -hmm. if I was born in a place like Chile or Africa or one of these places where there's just Mm -hmm. not a lot of opportunity to say the absolute very least and tons of poverty, I... I, I can't have a lot of respect for someone who wouldn't try their best legal or not quote unquote, because legal, I know that we can talk about legal in general and what that all means and the scope of all of this. I would do everything mm-hmm. it would take to give my family the very best life and opportunities possible. Um, and we can set the tone as Americans. I don't want to stay on my soapbox yeah. too long, but uh, no, no, I'm this cynical rebellious musician guy myself. I grew up as a rebellion. I play the drums mostly and some guitar and things, but I don't know. Part of that mindset of just beating the hell out of drums also brings with it. You you're a little bit of an old timer compared to me. We're growing up in the sixties and stuff. Sounds like, you know, Mm -hmm. you saw this rise in the music world. Just, we don't trust these Mm -hmm. folks anymore. (laughs) And, and it kind of permeated throughout rock music and other things throughout the decades. Um, But Mm -hmm. so that's kind of where I stand for better or worse, but I'd like to talk to you more about it real fast as we transition, anything you'd like to say about that, but I'd like to hear kind of what happened after you got arrested with your wealth and then transition maybe a little bit to the tax topic. uh, And, you know, Okay. Anything else you'd like to do? Well, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, after I was arrested, I went to prison for about five nights in, in, in uh, MDCLA, the Municipal Detention Center in Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah. Um, they shipped me out to, you know, you know about Con Air. Do you know what that is? It's that, you know, when I, I was arrested in, in uh, California, but my, uh, you know, my beef, they call it, <laughs> was in New York. So they had to get me to New York. Yeah. And, you know, they they put you in shackles and uh, leg irons and um, march you out to these unmarked planes on, uh, to Victorville. Mm. And, um, you know, you wound up, I wound up in Oklahoma City. I met a guy in Oklahoma City who... Uh, he was, you know, younger than me, but you know, he was 18 years into a 40-year bit for trafficking marijuana in Texas. Yeah. 40 years. Goodness gracious. He was a white guy. Yeah. But um, so I flew in Con Air with the guy, the guy who was across the row from me was uh, had no hair on his head and his whole face was tattooed like a skull his whole head was tattooed like all the lines between the different you know uh, anyways yeah. that was sort of spooky <laughs> uh and then uh you know uh, a few days later my lawyer from uh, century city <laughs> came and picked me up and flew me back and then i was then i was in the front row with champagne and you know stuff and <laughs> 10 days 10 days later i had to go down to new york to for arraignment they call it and uh, they, uh, I was, I, you know, I was uh, granted bail on uh, terms five million dollars, and uh, we, uh, I, and I was released, and I was out on bail then for about six years. 
And during that period, I was restricted to where I could be. They wouldn't let me travel to Canada, for instance. I had to stay in a couple of counties in, in, in California. And I had to I had to present myself weekly. And uh, Uncle Sam had me do something very private in a little jar every week. And he was, very, he was quite obsessive about that. Um, and eventually that uh, came to monthly. And then eventually they let me travel back to Canada. But I had to return every month to, um, to have my little, uh, you know, private visits with Uncle Sam down at the, uh, at the um, probation office. And um, during that period, I wasn't sure what to do, but I had made some arrangements to um, um, uh, do some recording. Uh, we can talk about that if you like, but um, it so happened we were going to, we planned to do something here in Canada, but then Brian Ahern, who was my record producer, um, quite a famous guy, if you, if you, if you hear what his accomplishments are, but not by name, um, said, well, you know, you could be out on bail in worse places than Los Angeles if you want to make a record. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And um, so he took me to... Uh, T-Bone Burnett's place in uh, Brentwood, and um, we um, T-Bone made us coffee, <laughs> and uh, you know we were about halfway through the first coffee when T-Bone says, you know, "Brian wanted to ask T-Bone about you know who, who who he thought Brian knows his way around Nashville a lot more. He knows his way, knew his way around Los Angeles by then. He knew, you know, he he had known Los Angeles thirty years before, but uh, by this time he was pretty ensconced in Nashville." Mm-hmm. Uh, T-Bone says, well, we should start with Jim Keltner. If you can get Jim Keltner on the drums, I don't need to tell you who Jim Keltner is, but um, if we can get Jim on the drums, all the rest of the cards will fall just right now. So anyway, I tell people that, you know, if you were, if you were, um, you know, Tom Petty, Bob Dylan, Jeff Lynn, George Harrison, and Roy Orbison, you had a band called the Traveling Wilburys, you could probably hire just about any drummer you wanted, right? Probably. Well, they hired Jim Keltner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we were halfway through the first coffee at T-Bone's place, and uh, Brian had Jim Keltner on the phone. He says, I got some time in June, Brian. And um, so Brian uh, booked uh, three weeks at uh, Village Recorder in West L.A., mm-hmm. and... Um, and by the end, by the time we finished coffee at, uh, at uh, T-Bones, we had, um, you know, five or six really, really great players that agreed to, uh, you know, try to get there. And so. That's amazing. And then um, that was it. And then, so you asked me what I did when, after I was arrested, but before it all wrapped up, uh, you know, over the next five years, um, I recorded twice. We had sessions in 2007 and in 2009. And in 2007, we did uh, 25 songs that I wrote, uh, two Mm -hmm. CDs, a double CD. And um, in 2009, we went back and uh, had Ocean Way Studios in in Hollywood. And Mm -hmm. uh, just about the same crew there. I'll mention the guys if you want, but uh, that's, that's all available online. Just the best, really the best players available in the world uh, for session men session yeah. persons yeah. yeah and um they were um and we did uh 19 songs then those songs will all be uh we've, we've just remixed them for uh on uh they're, they're going to be all on uh, apple music and spotify uh in about two weeks now i think oh, yeah. amazing so but when they're I- also available you can you can hear it all on uh, my, my website right now is under construction so it's a little bit difficult to find your way around but those who mm-hmm. are persistent can hear anything they want on, on johnlefave.com. 
Um, one of the problems of having a name like Lefebvre is it's hard to spell. Well, <laughs> You'll never stuff. guess how to spell it. But, um, you, you know, people who root around enough, Google knows who I am, but that's mostly because of my, uh, you know, my uh, diving deep in the gambling industry. But, uh, yeah, it's... That's amazing stuff, though. Google. I mean, and, and for the record, you know, I haven't lived in L.A., there's all this, like, name drop and stuff, but you worked with people who worked with names everybody knows. Johnny Cash, you know, George Jones, mm -hmm. Dolly Parton, Steely Dan, the Eagles. I mean, these are all people between your producer and musicians, Michael Jackson, Bonnie Raitt. Like, these these are the kinds of caliber of musicians that you worked with that were able to yeah, work with these level of artists. So. Right. That's exciting. <laughs> and that's awesome. When you're in a place like LA, they're, they, a lot of them live around the corner. So <clears throat> my mom lived in LA amazing. when I was 18 and she, she lived next door to Tom Petty's guitarist. <laughs> oh uh, yeah. 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 In Woodland Hills. Right. And it was, I used to, yes, yes. I used to remember his name. <laughs> honestly, I don't remember his name off the top of my head. God rest his soul, Tom Petty. Yeah. That, that was a sad one. When we lost him, but um, yeah, boy, yeah, that's heartbreaking for sure. It's a but, funny um, thing in LA. It's just, you run into these people, whether, whether they're your neighbors or they go to the grocery store. I mean, they're people like us and, <laughs> and it's just kind of a fun, you just kind of get used to it too. Um, but that's awesome. It, yeah, that's it a is nice, odd, isn't it? That's a nice outlet you had during this stressful time though. Right. I mean, did this help keep you sane to have this positive creative outlet? Oh yeah. It was a huge learning experience for me too. You know, I was, I was, you know, for sure an amateur, but these guys, they, you know, you can kick your, you can kick in the door with money, Phil, but you know, it's, it's another, you know, you have to do, you have something a little bit better than money to keep them there for three weeks and for them to come back for another whole session in a couple of years later. But, you know, I was amazed to see guys like Dean Parks, he's, you know, the, his most famous licks are all those really quick ones that he played on Steely Dan records, but you know, he's, he played for just about everybody in the world, you know, uh, yeah. opera singers, everybody. Yeah. And, um, to watch how gentle he sits and plays and how, what a gentle soul he is with people around him. Super funny, super witty, totally, totally at peace. And it, it just the things that come came off his fingers with absolutely minimum strain. And I, mm. and I learned so much about playing, but also about how to be a human being by hanging around these guys and, you know, uh, not, you know, they're not, they're, they are just normal geniuses, <laughs> you know, they're just, yeah. they're, you know, they're, they, they, they don't want to be treated like, you know, if you, if, if you treat them like they're heroes, um, they're going to start feeling like they're among fans. But if you treat them like a normal guy on the street, they're just exactly, that's exactly how they'll treat you too. They're all, that's they've awesome. seen them all, right. Those guys have seen, you know, Hutch Hutchison plays bass for Bonnie Raitt. Um, you know, uh, Greg Lease plays steel guitar for everybody. You know, he's the new sneaky Pete, uh, Pat Warren played keyboards for Tom Waits band, tour band. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I had uh, Matt Rollins played keyboards on the first record. He's uh, he, he tours with Mark Knopfler and Lyle Lovett. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't available for the second uh, round. So uh, for the second round, we had all the same lineup, but Bill Payne from the band Little Feet, I'm sure you know them, mm -hmm. um, showed up and Bill was uh, just, you know, these guys could just, it, rolled off their fingers you know just they wouldn't even look at you know they'd, they'd be looking around the room it's the most beautiful thing you know to see bill payne sitting at the 
keyboard there and playing this just the most amazing kind of ragtime <laughs> or whatever kind of music he wants with it never looking at his fingers he's like these amazing secretaries <laughs> who can type mm -hmm. without looking at the keyboard can you just it's beyond me <laughs> yeah i mean they master these instruments it's music's such a beautiful thing i got to know some because i went to music school myself in hollywood before when I, just after oh, high you? school yeah i went to musicians institute and stuff but um so I got to know some folks and things and it's, it's just, you know, a beautiful thing to watch people, whether it's music, sports, whatever, just people who just immerse themselves in something to be the very best they can be at it. Like you talked about just looking around the room, playing these amazing guitar, bass, piano, whatever it licks that they're on the drums even uh, because they just have such a, handle on their craft and that's that's why yeah. i for one my, my audience knows i love music most of my audience knows i play the drums and stuff but it's it's good to have a creative outlet especially going through stressful times. i think that's one thing not everyone got arrested for what you got arrested for but people go through stressful mm -hmm. times whether it's related to this pandemic or a divorce or yeah. all kinds of zillions yeah. of things humans go through to have some sort of creative outlet to keep us sane i think that's a general takeaway everyone can take from us talking here today for one thing is let's find something where we can uh, be creative and be positive and uh and maintain our sanity, right? Is that that sounds like that's kind of what happened here? Um, the uh, the creativity that we speak of, um, you know, Phil. I, I, I I'll, t I'll say this: if you can dream, then that's the place. That's the place of miracles. If you've ever had a dream in your life, you're the same as any musician or any artist or anybody else who has that release. And the most important thing for peace, even in the most terrible times is as much as possible to unclutter our minds and just let that place where things just automatically come from in within us, let it be, let it be free. One of the aphorisms I wrote in my book was be still yet still be. And mm -hmm. the idea of it is to just like be quiet and be awake. And then this miraculous thing that's within us. One of the points I make in my book, um, All's Well, Where There Are Earth and Why, uh, is that, you know, people think that the story of my life is fabulous, but that the most important, the most valuable, the most astonishing thing that fell in my lap fell into mine no more than it has into everybody's. And that is consciousness yes the miracle of being awake in the universe mm -hmm. it's just and it doesn't it's not a party that starts later you know this isn't you know it's this not it's not you know you have to go to the zendo for 30 years and then wake up no at every stop sign phil at every stop sign by every waterfall in every you know grocery store lineup it's the moment is miraculous. And if we're distracted from it, which, you know, 99% of the time we are, we're, 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 we're squandering it, you know? So, yeah. I, and right. so that, that, that moment, the peace and, 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 and um, I'm going to say a curative effect that, that you speak of from being creative with music and, and whatnot is, is not only available to artists and musicians, it's available to anybody who can just be quiet for a moment and let um, the miracle of, of being awake in the universe um, do its, do its work, do yeah. its job, you know, get out of our, get out of our way and 
shut up and dig the miracle, man. <laughs> yeah. And that's probably for sure. That's absolutely probably one of your big, not to overstep my bounds here. One of your takeaways of simplicity from the Dalai Lama and all these things and people you've associated with. It's simple things like that. We get so distracted, you know, things like the place like Vegas or New York or these big cities. It's like the lights and the whatever's going on. And when we get back past this COVID, there'll be concerts and sporting events and all these distracting things, which can be beautiful things in their own right. And yet if we keep our minds right, we can kind of rise above all of it and still be in it. Uh, and hopefully everyone kind of starts to understand that we Americans, we Westerners in particular tend to allow ourselves to be more distracted. <laughs> and uh, yeah. so I, I like that takeaway. I, I do want to, in the interest of time, I want to, anything else you want to say, you can touch on and go back to, but I do want to talk about the, the helping others and that whole topic, everything from taxation to just, Mm -hmm. lifting humanity some are less fortunate than others um what what are you, your thoughts on that and anything else you'd still like to touch on um what do you want to say on all that well, John? i think that i am um, my 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 um tilting towards generosity has gotten me some attention and, and, and another book uh, now that you'll find on johnlefave.com is called uh, good with money the subtitle is um, uh, a rich guy's, uh, you know, a rich guy's story about how to gain everything by losing it all. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and it gets into the generosity thing. Here's what I think. If you and I are entitled to all of the things that we think we're entitled to, you know, and, and that's, you know, I mean, it's, um, you know, food, clothing, and shelter, of course, but, you know, um, respect, security, um, access to education and healthcare and access to uh, basic finance and access to justice and, you know, access to a clean environment, all of those things. We take them for granted in our society and more or less um, we think we're entitled to them. But Phil, if we're entitled to them, everybody, everybody, everywhere is entitled to them. Yep. There is no, any, any, any kind of, attempt to distinguish between ourselves and the starving lady in Sudan uh, fails, you know, it fails. I can't help it. If I'm lucky, doesn't cut it, man, <laughs> mm -hmm. right. you know? And so we have, uh, and we, we have a huge, a huge future ahead of us uh, and a huge future full of wonder. I believe very profoundly that it, um, the rush that we get from generosity is so much more valuable than the rush that we get from my wad is bigger than your wad. I call, you know, that the, that's the, it's the wet dream of wealth to, to hoard money. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it, you know, the, the good feeling is, is gone and gone for no good reason. You know, it didn't even come for any good reason, but the feelings that come from being generous are eternal. And they just never, ever go away. Yep. And, you know, one of the things that we should, well, not one, yeah. One of the things that we should be doing as a, as a species is understanding that that poor woman on, you know, in the dust of Sudan, uh, you know, whose dusty breast yields nothing but dying whimpers for her flea-bitten child, you know, um, is exactly the same as us. She has the same dreams as us and she has the same horrors as us. 
And it costs just pennies for us to make her life a miracle, literally. And, you know, there's no reason for us to not do it. I mean, the, certainly it's so cheap, but the, it, and it really is. And I, you know, people, I don't, I don't want to spend the rest of my time here explaining to people how it costs so little because, the, the, you know, this, the, the truth of it is evident everywhere. You can read it in my book if you want. But here's the fundamental thing. Two things I want to say. One is that, you know, when you develop people, like you go to Malawi and you teach a guy how to um, uh, use a computer to make, you know, cartoons in the Malawi language, the guy in Malawi, he's not going to use his, he's not going to buy a car. He doesn't want a car. You say 20% of us have cars. Developing them isn't giving them cars. It's giving them the, avil- the ability to write cartoons in Malawi so that he can, you know, sell his cartoons to other people who speak Malawi and they can bring him a chicken. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. and then, but when when we develop people, they beca- then they can take care of themselves, right? Yeah. And they can take care of themselves. And when they do, wealth, I think, is infinite. You know, and the more the more the more we share with people, and the more we develop their ability to look after themselves, the much more wealthy everybody is going to get. Wealthy in in term money terms, but also wealthy in uh, social, emotional, spiritual terms as well. The wealth of being having been generous is um is an endless uh is it is a, is a well that gives that, that feed, feeds us endlessly and um you know For sure we can turn to that and one of, and the other thing that's one thing the other thing is when you help people they don't bust your balls <laughs> no one likes that problem yeah. is the thing that makes it the thing that makes this difficult and kind of like you know you may say i'm a dreamer but i'm not the only one the thing that makes it difficult is the only way we can accomplish that is if we handle the pricks in the world. We don't get to say, no, you get to cut off that girl's clitoris just because of whatever. No, you don't know. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. You don't get to do that. And that's a difficult thing. You don't, you don't get, you don't get to say, well, Robert Mugabe, he's good. For, you know, he, he buys dams from us. So we can't, you know, really put our foot down with him. We have a responsibility to put our foot down with all of the people who are causing this poverty and, deprivation the world over. It's a responsibility that falls on us. The difficult thing, uh, one of the, the, diff- the, there are many objections that we use for excuses to not go there, but one of the, one of the very complex ones is sovereignty, you know, jurisdiction. How come the Lone Ranger never crossed the border? And how, how come he never stormed through the river chasing the, the, you know, the hombres? And, um, you know, one of the things, you know, I've said is, uh, you know, uh, Kimosabi, no cross Rio Grande, shame on Kimosabi, <laughs> right? And, yes. you know, and just because, and, and here's an important point I need to make, Phil, just because in the past we've crossed the Rio Grande for wrong reasons, that doesn't excuse us from our responsibility for crossing the Rio Grande for the right reasons. Yes. You know, we should be going into... Uh, uh, Arabia and, uh, you know, uh, offering solace to young girls who are about to get mutilated. Yeah. We should. And our mm-hmm. and saying, well, you know, sovereignty and, you know, we don't, can't, we, we can't be stepping on MLB's toes. You know, what's that guy's name in Saudi MLB or something. I don't remember, you know, but yeah. you know, we, you know, we, we have to, we have a responsibility to look out for the little guys. Do you remember when we were kids and good cowboys, looked out for the little guys. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Well, let's sit with that for a moment. That's what we should be doing. 
Mm-hmm. You know, when people talk about growth, like our society is, is going to, our, our economy is going to flounder if we don't get growth. Well, you know what? 80% of the world needs to be developed better. And that is growth. And when we develop those people and create, you know, f- you know, um, power systems and food development systems and medical systems and all the rest, they're going to be coming to us for our help and they are going to be our customers. And your customer group has just increased by a factor of five. If that's not growth, what is? Two things are going to happen. We're going to get rich from developing them and the population of the world is going to stop increasing. Mm. It's simple and it's glorious. And it's just a, uh, unfortunately, it's going to take the wisdom of another generation to really embrace this stuff. Phil, that's my target. I want, I want kids my granddaughter's age to look at the books I've written and say, you know what, Ida, your grandpa was pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, well, you are. <laughs> that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> well, I mean, as we talk about it, John, it's like, to me, it, I'll just come out and say it. I feel it as you're saying it. Us, you know, creative musical types maybe feel things a little, I'm not going to say more than others, but it's kind of this depth. I can feel what you're saying. And I feel the responsibility both individually on me and collectively as a human species. I mean, this, this whole idea that has been implanted by selfish societies and governments and corporations and so on and so on, the whole money system that uh, it's this us versus them approach to life, whatever that means, whether it's a racial thing or borders thing or language thing, or these people south of the border are less than they're not, they're not. And that's, you know, my whole school of thought is just that it's common ground as human beings. And, and with emphasis on the literal common ground that we share on a tiny speck of the universe called earth. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we, we can't mm-hmm. undermine that by destroying, abusing, hurting each other because we're only hurting ourselves in the process. And uh, I'm just echoing what you're saying, my friend. Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> All right. We're in agreement. It's, uh, you may say we're both dreamers, but we're not the only ones either. <laughs> and, uh, well, so on that topic, as, as we get close to you know, kind of wrapping up here, what do you want to say? Because we talked about the taxation thing, and you mentioned a few things earlier. And as we go into that, my, uh, I guess, footnote on that topic is the whole thing that is kind of an obvious thing. Governments, at least in America, and I think globally, have a tendency to waste. And so... For mm-hmm. those of us who try to be more efficient and effective in our use of resources, it's like, okay, because um, I could argue both sides of the topic. Uh, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. I'm going to say, yes, people deserve to be equitably treated and to have the necessities of life, food, clothing, shelter at bare minimum, plus health care, plus the other uh, basic mm-hmm. needs met. Um, and then how do, we, how do we handle the taxation part, the waste part? What are your thoughts, John? Well, I, I, I'm not sure if this waste thing is real. Uh, you know, it, it, at least to some extent, it's not. You know, governments have difficult jobs to do. And if, if you think it's a waste to help people who are impoverished, um, you know, uh, then you're not my kind of guy, you know. But, you know, the um, of course, governments will waste if they're not um, regulated properly, you know, if they're not... You know, we need to have a free press that can watch what all governments are doing. And we need to, you know, but, you know, the, the to me, the excuse about waste is, um, 
you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a dog whistle for leave my money alone. I'm, I'm too busy hoarding to share <laughs> to, or to live up to my taxation responsibilities. You know, Jeff Bezos, you know, I mean, if he, under, under Elizabeth Warren, he what would he make $140 billion and, you know, made $40 billion off of the, you know, I love the guy. He's a nice guy, but you know what? He would not even know if he had to pay 2% a year. He'd never even know. It'd be, what was that, a mosquito? Yet that much wealth is enough to, you know, Elizabeth Warren wants to tax everybody who's got $50 million or more in the, in the United States on, on, and only on their money above $50 million, not, not below. Do you know how many people there are in the United States who have $50 million estates? 75,000. Wow. 75,000. That's one forty-fifth of 1%. Wow. One forty-fifth of one percent of Americans, and if those guys had to pay, say they only started to pay half a percent on the, uh, the fifty million. Say when you got up to two hundred million, you had to pay two percent. Say when you got up to a billion, you had to three, pay three percent. Phil, that's vast amounts of money, and right now we're just you know hiding them in big vaults under the mountain while people are starving. And we say, well, you know, I can't, you know, if I, if I give them any money, then they're just going to become reliant. No, that's exactly the opposite of what America was built upon. You know, America was built upon, you know, Adam Smith's idea that if we turn men, he, he quaintly, he called them men, but I think he meant people. <laughs> if we turn people free, they know what's best to do. And people are fundamentally good. And Adam Smith thought good men will look after the less fortunate. That's the fundament yeah. that that's the fundamental idea of American democracy. Turn good people free and they'll take care of everything. Well, that's changed a lot. That's changed a lot where we've got now we've come to um, we've, we, and, and so anyways, if you, and it, just to skip back to what we were talking about to keep me, to keep me in line here. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the way America started. Right. But where, but where, where we've come to now is, Oh, you know, if we give them $400 in COVID, then they're going to be reliant. Well, yeah. it's uh... And that's not, if we give, if we give them a thousand dollars a month for the rest of their life, they're not going to be reliant. They're going to use it to look after themselves. That's the spirit that made America great. If you turn good people free, they're going to make good things happen. And that's the spirit that America was created upon. And that's the spirit it can actually get great again upon. Trust that good people will do good things when you help them. Yeah. I, well, and I, for one, I'm a very optimistic, I believe at the core of in the good nature of humanity. And I believe by and large, the vast, vast majority of human beings on earth are good people who would honestly love to help each other because it's in our nature, whatever, you know, we could dig deep on religious and spiritual yep. levels as to maybe why, but that's there and let's not fight against it. And, and your topic of when we talked about the waste thing, I guess the only thing I was saying about that, John, is that the uh, governments have a history of overinflating what things end up costing and should cost versus, let's say, the private sector. And so I just wonder if there's mm -hmm. a way we can team up together. Again, it's going to take efforts on all fronts 
to just do it, to, mm-hmm. to lift each other and to not think, oh, well, we, we only matter within our borders. Yeah, I know there's a lot of that going on, especially in a place like America. I acknowledge it. But uh, it, I guess what I'm getting at is there's, there's stories of the government will put together a proposal to, let's say, build a bridge. And then the private sector realizes, oh, it'll actually only cost about a quarter of what you, you're going to spend on that. But, <laughs> and so that translates to every aspect whether it's building a bridge or, or feeding the poor, it's, we just, we need to be efficient and effective in our use of these resources, don't we? Yes, we do. And we have to be like very, very careful to make sure that uh, governments aren't wasting And on every one of those waste things, Phil, some private corporation got paid way too much. Yeah, exactly. That's it's what's all wrong. Vicious you know, cycle. They don't care. They don't, they don't complain about waste when it's in the army. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, buy that's a not waste. For that's the military. Quit changing, quit changing the subject. That's not waste. That's the military. Yep. <laughs> that's right. right. So no governments are no more wasteful than, you know, well, I'm going to, I'm going to say it right out loud. Corporations waste money hoarding profit. <laughs> and I know, you know, I'm, I, I'm a, I'm a big supporter of corporations. I don't, but they need to be regulated and they need to be, and they need to pay their fair share. And it, once they, if they, if they, you know, we don't need any more corporations that make money dumping mercury or, or changing climate. What we need is corporations that make good money doing good work efficiently. Mm-hmm. That's what we need. But corporations that make money dumping mercury, like Charles Koch's companies, you know, Charles Koch got nine, 90 million pounds of mercury were dumped into Love Canal or whatever it is, you know, and that was, it was largely took for, to his profit. And when he was dragged up on the carpet for it, you know what he said? I thought we lived in a free country. <laughs> These despicable. are complicated topics. I, I just believe. It's despicable. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. It's, uh, yeah, I, I want to get humanity to that place. And I, and I believe you are a trailblazer. I believe your grandkids and beyond will look back and say, John had some <laughs> things figured out and they're going to, you're going to have a legacy here. Uh, not to say your Thanks life's over. Hopefully you're still with us for many decades to come, but I appreciate all the great, again, we could talk for hours about all this stuff and I love your insights and uh, just candid, sincere. I hope our audience can feel that coming from you. Um, I'd, if you don't mind, in closing, I like to ask people, and I'm going to be doing this more. I've done it sometimes on the podcast. Do you have any heroes, John? And if so, who? <laughs> and I know I'm putting you on the spot Tom with that. Waits. Tom Waits, Elvis Costello. <laughs> Musicians. <laughs> you know, you know, they're, well, they're poets, right? And, you know, True. I mean, James Joyce, Roberto Bolaño. Yeah, look him up. He wrote a book called 2666. I, my, my, my heroes are the people who are, who understand the value of proper astonishment in the moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's just about everybody, you know, the ordinary guy, you know, the, the ordinary guy who is, you know, committed to finding peace in his heart. That's the, my hero. <laughs> I like it. I like it. The value of finding proper astonishment in the moment and uh, peace in their heart. Do you have any final thoughts as we get ready to close? I want to point out as, as I ask you that you've got these two books, uh, all's well, where thou art earth and why. And the other one very recently good with money, 
a rich guy's guide to gaining everything by losing it all, which is a beautiful and very intriguing title. Um, but having said all that, final thoughts, my friend. Well, you know, I, where I'd like to leave it, Phil, is here. You're welcome back here anytime. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome on the podcast so or it's sequel. Been, yes. It's great to uh, great to get to know you, Phil, and uh, bless your heart and, and all uh, and all and all your listeners and everybody else too. Those are my final words. Likewise, likewise to you. Well, next time you're in Vegas, you know, send me an email or whatever. We'll uh, we'll get together if, if you want to. Uh, but you bet I'll let you know. Thanks, Phil. <laughs> Okay, well, until then, and uh, we're grateful, as always, to our audience. Of course, flattered you spend time with us. And uh, until next time, empower yourself, empower the world around you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Empower Humans. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review this podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit EmpowerHumans.com. We'll catch you next time.